Welcome to the public morality. What would the Supreme Court look like without moral persuasion? Would it be reduced to the words of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who said last year, a bunch of partisan hacks? I raise those questions as revelations that Jenny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, urged White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to pursue efforts to overturn the 2020 election. According to Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, Jenny Thomas pursued unrelenting efforts to overturn the 2020 election. What does this revelation mean for Justice Thomas, the Supreme Court, and American democracy? Joining us to discuss the Jimmy Thomas bombshell, we welcome back political analyst, Professor Emeritus, and newly appointed Public Ethics Commissioner for the City of Oakland, Joe Tooman. Joe Tooman, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me back. It's really good to talk to you. Now, to my knowledge, one would have to go back to 1861 when John Tyler, the nation's 10th president, joined the Confederacy. To your knowledge, do we have anything that rivals what uh, reporting indicates is strong evidence that Jenny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, communicated with Mark Meadows about overthrowing the 2020 election results? Well, I, I don't think there's any question about that uh, at all. And if my memory serves me correctly, the November 6th commission, the House commission um, that's uh, investigating this already has uh, some of those um, uh, emails as well. And I believe the Washington Post has already uh, gotten probably from other people uh, copies of some of that as well. So there's no, that's not a, that's not a factual dispute at all. It's, it's really clear what she did. And in recent appearances, by the way, she's seemed, at least to my eyes, my ears, to be totally unapologetic for that and uh, continues. Now, here we are in 2022 to uh, repeat Trump's nonsense about how the election was, quote unquote, stolen from him and uh, how this was in, in unjust. And, and um, I'm not sure if she's continuing to encourage his nonsense or his lies have encouraged and emboldened her nonsense. But whichever of those two it is, they're continuing to do this. They're clearly trying to reach out to the, uh, the, the MAGA base of the Republican Party, which I think is beginning to draw down a little bit now and uh, keep Trump uh, active and in the game. Not clear at this point if Trump intends to run for office as he said that he would, or if he's really doing this just to continue this juggernaut of a fundraising operation that he has. And I'm sure with a guy like that, if he raises millions of dollars, he's going to you know, figure out a way to pay it to himself. So he'll continue to have those meetings in Miralago or any of his hotels and charge maximum rates for people who come. And that'll be the way that uh, if he's going to fund some of that himself, he'll pay it probably out of the money that he's doing to do the fundraising. And that's, that's what I think this is all about in the end. I, I'm not sure if he's really serious about being president again. Um, he's, he's so completely out of the loop on all the issues from uh, the, 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 now we're in our third generation of a COVID virus, all the way to uh, war with Ukraine and Russia and Russia's threats to use nuclear weapons or chemical weapons. Um, there's just so much to look at. Uh, Trump is, is uh, you know, Trump is, 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 is involved with grievance. Trump is worried about the state attorney general coming after him and making him testify. He's not, he's not knowledgeable about these other things. So it would be maybe even for a guy like that, uh, the smartest thing he could do would be uh, not to run and just to keep raising money, um, uh, which makes him influential and, and makes him rich because this is a guy that finds a way to get around campaign finance restrictions and stick some of this money in his own pocket. No question. Uh, let, let's take a step back. Uh, for, for several years, um, uh, people have held, long held on both sides of the aisle that spouses have a right to their own careers. Um, there's an unprecedented level about this that has momentarily captured our attention within this voracious 24-hour news uh, cycle. Yeah. Um, how do we account for this? I mean, this clearly draws the line. I mean, how can we simply say, well, spouses have a right to their own careers? Well, I, I don't think we can say that. Um, you, when you 
select someone to the United States Supreme Court, you're not selecting their spouse as well. You're selecting the um, he or she uh, to the court. And, and that person is the one who is responsible for um, uh, the decision to take up appeals. He's, he or she is responsible for um, what position they take on these issues and which part of the court they side with in the end in rendering a decision. A spouse has this much to do with that, which is nothing to do with that, zero to do with that. If we thought spouses were relevant to the process, we would have said, uh, this, this is an appointment process for you and your husband or wife and your three children and your dog walker and the person who watches your car every other week. You can all be part of this. But we don't say those things. It's the single individual. And so uh, the first thing I would say is that, uh, uh, well, in, in fairness to her and to, to uh, uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, um, she was doing kind of work before. And, and uh, also someone who I think truthfully, if, if you'll forgive my evaluation of her, she's someone who opens mouth and inserts foot quite a bit. Um, I don't think she's uh, that strategic or smart. I just think she's a hustler. She works hard. And uh, over the course of, of, of this most recent uh, imbroglio that we're involved with, um, she has inserted herself into a process that she has no right to be involved with. And what's made it worse, as I'm sure we're going to talk about in just a moment, is that uh, when that same January 6th commission had requested evidence, and that was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas not only voted against that to, you know, to protect Trump's private, what he said, private records and the like, um, he also, in that instance, uh, did not recuse himself when there was a very clear conflict of interest with his wife being involved in this and with him having to make a legal decision. How are we to know um, that uh, she didn't influence um, his, his decision-making? And uh, you could say, well, maybe he was already in agreement with her on the position or something like that. But the fact is, it was the appearance of impropriety. So this is moving in some respects from being a, a question of law, a legal discussion that we're having right now to really an ethics discussion. Um, because uh, uh, at one level or another, it's not clear that she broke the law, obviously enough, uh, by doing this. But what she did was uh, she created the appearance of impropriety here because this was his wife. She was actively doing these things. And then after the fact, not only did Justice Thomas vote to protect Trump and not re release the documents that the commission was looking for, um, he went one step worse and refused to, uh, or declined to recuse himself, which is mean when, you, when a judge or justice recuses, they take themselves out of the decision-making saying, um, I'm not gonna vote here because I have a conflict of interest. My wife was involved in this. And so the rest of you will vote for this and decide. And he didn't do that. And it just stretches uh, any kind of credibility to think that a person who's been on the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court for that long doesn't understand appearance of impropriety and the necessity um, uh, to, to keep that distance between yourself and, and your spouse. And when there is a question of a conflict of interest, you always must recuse. I mean, that is a no brainer. That's, you learn that in law school in the first year. So how somebody who's sitting on the court this long could have forgotten that, um, I don't know. I, I think what's pretty clear is that he, he just did it and got away with it. And, and now it's going to fall probably to, to Justice Roberts, who is sort of the person who, who, who calls the strikes and the fouls on the Supreme Court, um, to have a conversation with Justice Thomas about this. And uh, because this could very likely happen again, he's setting a precedent. And, and if they don't step down on him hard, and they won't, they can't technically do anything to him, but Justice Roberts can probably have a conversation with him and suggest to him, um, this is inappropriate. It damages the image of the court and the sanctity of the court when you do things like this. It's bad judgment. And you know maybe this is also more evidence that, and I don't wanna be an ageist in this, but Justice Thomas is also like many of the other justices getting up there in years. And so perhaps he, maybe he missed this, I don't know. I don't wanna be mean to him. Um, but there's a reason we give judges and justices, Byron, as you know, life tenure. And that's to depoliticize the decision-making they're going to make. In this instance, it's very clear that Justice Thomas's 
not only his vote, but his, his decision not to recuse himself was politically motivated, no question about it. And his wife clearly played a role in that. The reason we give people life tenure in the Supreme Court and in the lower courts as well is because we trust them to be honest and truthful and to uphold the law. And those three principles right now, I think are in question um, uh, after, after uh, this most recent situation um, with uh, Justice Thomas not recusing himself and his wife continuing to involve herself in something that clearly created and still creates to this day a conflict of interest. How can we reconcile the fact that we have a Supreme Court justice uh, who is the lone dissenter in turning over documents by the National Archives yeah. uh, that contain his wife's um, controversial text, the chief of staff, and him being one of the few dissenters when the Supreme Court rejected uh, President Trump's bogus election fraud charges. Can, I, mean, can, I mean, can we reconcile those? Or another way to put it, how does this further erode our trust in, in, in probably the last civic institution that many Americans do trust, the Supreme Court? Well, uh, that's a good question. And uh, I'll, I'll begin uh, with, with this observation, which is that, that there has been, uh, I think, an erosion um, of, uh, of, of, of the norm in the past, um, which was to separate uh, uh, politics from law. And, uh, you know, that goes back a half a century at the least, if not more, um, on race-related issues, um, on equity and equality uh, issues um, with, uh, uh, with the court. Um, but it's never been this bad uh, before. And uh, today, uh, you not only see um, this sort of thing happening with conflicts of interest, which are, are, are generated around political issues like the type that we're talking about here. Um, we also saw it, uh, if you want a different example to your question about how can we correct it, um, it it's, it's already like that before somebody becomes a Supreme Court justice. I mean, it's been this way for a while that, that people uh, in one party or the other um, will ask very difficult questions. And I think anybody who's up for a judicial appointment and life tenure understands that they're gonna get put through the grinder. But uh, in this last week, by way of example, um, the, the conduct of, of mostly Republican senators um, who clearly intend to run for president themselves if they can make sure that Donald Trump doesn't run, um, we're all looking for uh, uh, examples of sound and, and, and footage that they can use in a campaign uh, ad. And uh, otherwise, their questions were totally irrelevant to the subject matter, which were the qualifications of an excellently qualified uh, uh, judge that soon to be justice, um, who has, has decided more cases than anyone who's ever appeared, you know, if you go back on their record, before uh, this, this committee uh, picking a Supreme Court justice before. We've never had someone so qualified. And to listen to people like uh, Senator Cruz, who, who's also a Harvard graduate and keeps reminding us of that, um, and was in her class, by the way, um, to listen to him lecturing her um, about uh, uh, segregation in schools and the rest of it when her parents went to segregated schools. And she had to sit there and endure his, his nauseous, uh, rude, condescending comments um, is again an example of, of how politics has sort of gotten back into this. So the first thing I would say to you, if you're following me on this, is that we need to separate these things again. Politics are fine, and we have elections to decide those things, um, but, but politics should not be involved with the law. Um, the, the reason we have judges or justices, they're, they're like, you know, uh, umpires at a baseball game. They're, they're calling strikes and fouls. And, uh, and, and that's, that's their job. And it's not the job of politicians to be involved themselves with the court in this way, unless the Congress itself has a legal issue, which can't be, um, reconciled for them and they and they seek guidance from the court that's really the only time when you should find emerging of, of politicians at least uh, and the court and we're so far polarized in this country byron to your other point um, about how to fix this that uh, 
I, I'm not really sure how we reconcile this at this point. It's 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 almost become. I mean, this is why uh, um, control of the House and the Senate is so important. Uh, the midterms are frankly more important than the presidential election at this point, um, because much of that has to do with who sits on what committees, and uh, uh, you know we saw this a year before this when. Uh, Senator McConnell denied Barack Obama his right to select and nominate um, Merrick Garland. And uh, then McConnell quickly rushed through two other appointees or, or nominees um, from President Trump and got them through. And uh, not one of those people were anywhere near as qualified as the, the, the judge who sat through this nonsense this past week. And all of that was about politics again. So and, and I'm going to say to, 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 to that yeah, point, um, your midterm point, um, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham has already stated that if Republicans take control of the Senate in the midterms, it is unlikely that they will even consider a judicial nominee for President Biden until 20, till after 2024 election. Yeah. Well, now here's the one thing I will say about Biden. Of course, Biden is not, uh, he, he, I guess he has a legal background, but he's not practicing law. He's, he's the president, obviously. And before he was president, he was one of those guys that was involved in everything in the Senate and in Congress generally. He's a player politically as well. And uh, even though there are plenty of people there who would like to get rid of him and or who think he's, he's too old um, and their age, say that as well. Uh, Biden is still somebody who can play that game with the politicians too. So I, I do hear you on, on that point that McConnell made. In spite of the fact that people will sort of dismiss Biden, who, will, who is, is uh, certainly going to run for president again, unless he has some kind of uh, ailment or illness. Um, Biden was a player in Congress for a long time too. He was not, he was kind of like a democratic version of the knuckleheads we saw uh, in, in the Senate confirmation hearings this week. These, these people are players. So I wouldn't be quick to dismiss him uh, on that because um, he knows how to play that game with them as well. Now, getting Mitch McConnell to do his bidding um, usually involves giving Mitch something really great that he can give back to his people at home so that they'll make massive donations to keep Mitch in that and give him a chance to be the leader of the Senate again. I know a lot of people dismiss this, but uh, I think Biden is a viable candidate in the next election cycle. And, and uh, they, their, their thought that they'll control the Senate and they'll block him or whatever, you know, this is what we were saying before we lost our power. Um, there, are, there are a growing number of people in the Republican Party who are tired of being associated with Donald Trump and very much like to sort of maybe go back to the Ronald Reagan version of the Republican Party or something like that, that, uh, that didn't seem quite so um, dirty, uh, in need of a bath, <laughs> in need of having their mouth washed out with soap. Um, that's, that's the party we have today. Uh, uh, you mentioned Senator Graham, listening to his diatribe um, uh, and trying to is, is insinuation somehow that this judge, with all of her experience, sitting on the most powerful appellate court outside of the Supreme Court, the most pow powerful circuit court of appeals, the D.C. Circuit Court, um, that she's soft on crime and that she his insinuation that he that, that she uh, enabled um, uh, uh, pedophiles and, and sex offenders um, was just outrageous absolutely outrageous, but this was them getting away with what they thought they could get away with. And uh, I think that there are a lot of people who looked at that in the Republican Party and said, you know, if winning is all about throwing mud and, and denigrating the other person, then we will forever be uh, people we call ourselves colleagues who are not colleagues. So I, to your original question, I don't see us undoing this right now because it's never been this bad. And it's, it is really politically bad now. 
And uh, and as I said, that politics is it, this, it's kind of like a political COVID, if you want to call it that, like a, a, a political disease now that has infected everything. And it makes doing the business of, of government difficult. And uh, it, it presents an image of us to the rest of the world that makes people wonder, is democracy such a great thing if you people can't get along with each other? Um, and then they wonder, are we really the example, frankly, for everybody else globally? I've wondered that myself, frankly. And it's not just one person is responsible for this. It's both parties to a degree. And right now it's the Republicans because they're trying to get those two bodies in the Congress back, the Senate and the House, um, who are fighting desperately and playing as dirty as they can. But this is, this is becoming the norm and it's shameful. I'm wondering, is there a potential loophole in our constitutional adherence in that uh, the decision for Justice Thomas, whether to recuse himself, his and his alone to make? Oh, it's, it was, I don't know about the constitution necessarily, but it is, I think, standard uh, procedure that in, in any situation like this, where you have a conflict of interest, you recuse. And to do that, to not do that is, is not to my, my knowledge uh, illegal so much as it is unethical. And uh, as I said, you know, the ethics part of this is a big deal for our legal system because as I said earlier, the reason we give life tenure is that we trust their honesty and their integrity. And when you're behaving the way that Justice Thomas behaved, that behavior is not ethical and, and uh, absolutely inappropriate. He's, he's playing the game too, frankly. He's, he's be behaving like a politician, not like a justice. According to uh, Washington Post, the reporting by uh, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, um, Thomas's text message to Meadows, uh, quote, help this great president, I guess President Trump, stand firm, Mark. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our of our history. Now, if one puts aside the calls for insurrection, the text also indicates what I would define as the power of certainty that has been persuasive in our public discourse. In this case, Thomas's text justifies insurrection. If we are there at at um, what has been, if you take the Trump uh, administration been infiltrated uh, into the executive branch. Uh, this certainty is certainly pervasive in the legislative branch and with Jenny Trump, although not explicitly, is now bleeding into um, the judicial branch. Can that Jenny be put back in the bottle? Not, well, anything can change. So that would be my first answer. I, I don't want to make things sound hopeless. Um, but this is not the sort of thing uh, that would happen overnight. This is something that has to happen over a very long period of time. Um, and there, there'll need to be a reconciliation between the different uh, groups and individuals. Um, I, I think that uh, it's, it's behooves, I think, Congress to uh, rethink the roles and responsibilities of people in the Senate and the House of Representatives. And um, you have to have people who can work with each other. And, and we have small pools in both the House and in the Senate of people who, who actually do know each other. And sometimes, you know, we'll stay over in Washington for several weeks or whatever, they have dinner with each other, they talk, that sort of thing. And uh, they become friends. Um, it's not impossible. It's, uh, it's worth uh, remembering, for example, uh, that, that Ted Kennedy, um, who was obviously a liberal and a Democrat, um, was very, very close friends uh, with the Reverend, of all people, Reverend Jim Jones, believe it or not, uh, to the point where they uh, dined with each other uh, often. And, and Kennedy, even though he was, you know, 180 degrees on the other side of politics with Jones, who's, um, well, he's supposed to be a minister, but he's pretty politically active. So he's kind of playing like a, a political player. Um, 
they got along. They 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 worked with each other. They were they were friends, and uh, I so, so I look to examples like that to say that it is possible to to put the genie back in the bottle, to have people work with each other and be collegial, and when they call one another their colleagues, really mean it, not just sort of be throwing up a label to make it sound good, um, but to do that, they have to spend time with each other, they have to understand each other. And they have to look for places where they can agree on things of all, instead of always sort of planning, you know, what's, what's the way I can stick this guy in the back. We are starting to teach children today uh, in different programs, that sort of thing to, to learn how to get along with people and be constructive because there certainly are benefits when, when, even if we disagree with each other, if we're being civil and polite and friendly, um, the outcome is always better. It's always better. And, and why wouldn't that be the same case, obviously enough, uh, for government, for Congress? I'll just finish on this. I, I think it would be unfair of me to blame Donald Trump for all of this, but I will say that, that uh, his snarling nonsense at all these rallies he's had over several years, including when he was out of office, was always intensely negative, crude, vulgar, uh, condescending, um, and, and sort of appealing to our worst instincts as human beings. And uh, he's not the only one who does it, but I think part of the reason he became so popular in the Republican party is they, the other Republicans saw how much money he could raise because of that and how many followers he got when his, you know, he didn't do much campaigning except for going to those rallies, which were also fundraisers for him for the most part. If there wasn't money there, he wouldn't have shown up. And uh, so to, to sum this up, it is possible. There are examples of this in the past. There are living examples of that today. There are people who, who do work with each other and, and are, are kind to one another or, or at least friendly. Um, but there are more people there who are not like that. And that's the, that's the norm that needs to change. From your perspective, Joe, what, what are the long-term ramifications if Justice Thomas does not recuse himself from further January 6 hearings? Short term, uh, he continues to create uh, problems um, in, in uh, the, this, this commission, the January 6th commission, uh, pursuing its objectives and, and trying to get it at all the evidence they'll need to make the report, which might also include a criminal referral to the Department of Justice. And so um, I don't want to overstate this, but, but by, by not sort of recusing himself, by continuing to engage in this behavior and, not, and also not sort of reining in his wife, I'm, I'm not trying to say he controls her, but really discouraging her from doing this because it's, if he wants to go on being a justice, she's going to make it hard for him. Um, uh, I, I think that, that uh, uh, that's one part of this. The, the, to your question, what, what's the long-term impact of this beyond January 6th commission and the rest of it? Um, is that it just sets a very dangerous, I hesitate to use the word precedent, but uh, example um, for other justices to do the same thing. If he, if he does it, why can't I do it? And uh, in that situation, um, we have justices acting unethically um, in, in, if that were to happen, uh, openly courting conflict of interests and ignoring them. Um, that makes the justice, as I said, not really a legal operator, it makes him a political operative in that situation. And that is extremely dangerous. And that's one of the reasons, again, I said before, I think it's fair to say that other countries are looking at how we behave ourselves here as we hold ourselves out as the example of a democracy. And uh, the one part of our government, which is not elected, they're appointed and they go through a rigorous process and they have to be hugely qualified for this they're now behaving that way too, in ways that sort of do not make the argument for democracy over autocracy. Um, and they don't make an argument for the United States being the example of a democracy. Justice Thomas's failure to recuse th was throwing an extra log on that fire. And, and that will just get worse if this example is taken up by other members of the court. And, and Joe, as you all know, I, I hold that this whole Democratic Republican form of government that we have is, is really held together by an idea and uh, per the Declaration of Independence. And, and 
I'm, I'm looking at where we've gone in each branch of government. And so if the uh, embers of politics now uh, invade the judiciary, um, what are the implications for that idea? Well, very negative, I think. It, it, and it would, it would invite, uh, if we were going to redo things completely, um, uh, a political process into something which is supposed to be apolitical it would very much threaten our democracy and perhaps even uh, hasten the change of our democracy or the demise of our democracy in some ways. There are state examples, if we go to state government as opposed to the federal government, of, of states that, that uh, have people run for office to become a judge, right? So it's not like that's never happened before in the lower federal courts that are state, not federal. Um, and uh, that could happen here. We, we could end up with a process where, where you know, uh, um, somebody, uh, just Kavanaugh, then just Judge Kavanaugh running for office, um, you know, has to have an election and then produce uh, uh, television advertisements and do opposition research on the other justices to make sure he gets the deal. And, and do we want a system like that? It would be terrible. It really would be. So I hope we pull back on this. And, and uh, I hope somebody as, who's been on the court for as long as Clarence Thomas understands um, how far this could go and what kind of a, a long reaching impact this could have. Um, not the least of which right now is his impact on um, what finally happens with this, this commission, this committee that's, that's come after uh, uh, Donald Trump on, on January 6th, and this whole question of whether they'll make a criminal referral. Um, and will that include Trump, by the way, as well? Um, the, that, these are big political questions. And, and um, it's interesting that this, this committee, uh, the January 6th committee, which has the um, Republicans on it enough to, so we can claim it's bipartisan that way, although not terribly bipartisan, but uh, I have to say Liz Cheney, I was surprised at first when, when she offered to go and then, and, and then interested to see what she's done. She's been a pretty even handed player. I don't agree with her politics all the time, but on this particular issue, she saw this correctly from the beginning, I think. I think the other long-term thing that we look at here is to this question of the insurrection. And um, I think there's abundant evidence that Trump and many of the people who worked in his White House were involved uh, not only in encouraging the insurrection, but also in an unlawful, illegal attempt to undo a lawful election. And uh, it's not enough today to say, well, Biden got sworn in anyway. They attempted to break the law. And in doing that, they did break the law. Those are felonies. And uh, of course, anybody who's accused in that at that level is probably going to appeal this all the way to the Supreme Court. So you know where this is going to go eventually. That's why it's important, though, for this commission to put together all of the evidence. And that's why it was important for someone like Clarence Thomas not to vote or dissent against you know, releasing some of this information to them when they're trying to uh, finish their report and, and, and make what is um, the final assessment. I'm listening to your last answer and I'm thinking back to uh, Alexander Hamilton in February 78 where he, where he talks about that the judiciary doesn't have a purse or a sword, um, but they have judgment. I take that to mean that all the Supreme Court really has is moral uh, persuasion. Um, when you think about not just this jaw-dropping email uh, text exchange between Jenny Thomas and Mark Meadows, but when you go back to the way, as you referenced earlier, um, the Mayor Garland hearing was stalled, and I might add the, um, in, that was in 2016, then in 2020, sort of fast-tracking uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, um, when we look at the court, um, I mean, just the whole notion of Marbury v. Madison judicial review, is, is that under attack? Am I, am I just going overboard? No, I think it's, it's anything which threatens the integrity of the court, which undermines our respect for the court and our reliance 
and belief that the people who take on life, a life position, a life tenure position, um, it, it comes with the expectation that they will behave in a way that is, uh, as I said before, and I've, I've said several times today, apolitical, it's not supposed to be political, um, and behaves in a way um, that, that shows uh, the integrity of the individual justices and the reliability, the fact that all of us can, not reliability, but reliance that all of us can have um, in the honesty and truthfulness and wisdom of their opinions. When they behave in a way that, that, that uh, is outside that expectation, then they are undoing a couple of hundred years of, of having a, a, a court, which was the counterbalance to a presidency and executive branch and a counterbalance to uh, the legislative branch of government, the, the Congress, the House and the Senate. And uh, it's, it's so important to have a, a respectable, respected, trusted judiciary. And uh, anything which undoes that, like this behavior is chipping away at, at, at that protective measure around the Supreme Court and frankly, all of the judicial system. Um, it, it's hugely important. Uh, and, and so to your question about uh, the Marbury case and um, uh, also uh, what comes later, stare decisis, binding precedent and the rest of that, all that depends on having the right people in these judge positions and justice positions who will behave in a way that, that follows the rules. And also what are kind of obvious and reasonable expectations like being self-aware that you should recuse yourself when your wife is involved in something that you're making a decision on. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's mind boggling to think that somebody wouldn't look at that and say, whoa, stop. Okay. We're not going to do this. And, and that no one has yet said that to my knowledge on the court itself to Clarence Thomas um, is also mind boggling, frankly. To your best analysis, and I know this is pure speculation uh, uh, that I'm asking, but can you conceive of any way that Justice Thomas could be truly ignorant of his wife's involvement or the level of her involvement? Not her involvement, but the level of her involvement. I, I don't have um, the, the, the luxury of being in their presence all the time to know what they talk about uh, when they're not around other people. But I have seen and read um, excerpts from this uh, and seen some video in which they are walking together. I think he was wearing a tuxedo, so they're probably going to some kind of, you know, Washington event. Uh, and in another example I, I read, it was, it was very similar to what was said in, in when he was dressed up and walking with his wife. Um, he described, he, Justice Thomas, described he and his wife, I'm paraphrasing, but I believe this is what the exact word he said was, he described them as a, a quote-unquote team, and that uh, they liked working together, they liked being with each other, and the very clear inference from the way he described their marriage and the fact that they were both sort of Washington insiders this way was to describe them as a team. And um, I believe that's the word that was used. And uh, uh, I mean, he didn't go so far as to say, I do whatever she tells me to do, or, you know, she, she influences me this way or that. He's not, I don't think that foolish. Um, but it is also clear at the same time, to use a phrase I've already shared with you, um, that, that uh, he is by his behavior in this or his failure to behave in a certain way, um, not addressing a conflict of interest. He, and he is, by doing that, he is creating the appearance of impropriety. I mean, even if it's never proven a hundred million percent that she did this, which influenced him this way or whatever, just the fact that she's doing it creates something that looks bad. Or if you want a different example, it smells bad. You just, you just know at the moment you take you inhale and say, this isn't right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And any reasonable person in that job would know at that point. I mean, you don't just start with the Supreme Court. If you, if you get to the Supreme Court, you've been through all the other little courts to get there. You've had a world-class education on what you are supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. And as I said before, it just stretches uh, uh, anything that's honest or credible to suggest that he wouldn't have known the right thing to do. He chose to do the wrong thing. And 
there is a, a, actually a remedy for that. He can choose to resign from the court and he can also, by law, be impeached and removed. I don't think that uh, impeachment is likely in this scenario because that would also invite more partisan charges from Republicans and the like. But you know, if a Democrat uh, appointed court member had done this, there would already be riots in Washington, you know, and, and demonstrations about this already, calling for not just <laughs> impeachment, but up with their head or something like that. Uh, it's pretty serious, frankly. Talking with longtime political analyst Joe Tuman and recently appointed to the Ethics Commission of the City of Oakland. So who better to talk about these ethical issues? Um, my next question, Joe, is will probably sound to many, depending on what they said, as one rooted in partisanship, but it but it really isn't. G given the facts that the 2020 election was one of the cleanest we've ever had, um, how can one not see this exchange between Thomas and Meadows um, as two people who were really unmoored from reality? I don't think you can see it any other way. Yeah, you, you've got that right. It's, it's, uh, there's not a defense for it at all. And, and the only thing that Meadows has going for him which now invites the January 6th commission back into this. They're sort of, they're, they're involved in this too. Is the fact that when he was first subpoenaed, uh, Meadows was, and asked to turn over documents, he did actually turn over a, a pretty extensive uh, pile of stuff, um, which very clearly uh, already spelled out uh, uh, who was involved in the White House with planning this and, and the law, just you, their, their exchanges. And eventually then, of course, these emails became part of this discussion later when this was discovered um, more recently. But it's, it's the same sort of thing. And so uh, what Meadows, somebody like Meadows has working in his favor is that when he was subpoenaed, he did not resist. Initially, he turned over documents. What he has going against him was he didn't turn over everything. And uh, he certainly wasn't in any rush to turn over uh, the more recent evidence um, from Clarence Thomas's wife of those emails as well. I think he's in trouble, frankly. I think a number of these people will be in trouble um, if the uh, and when the uh, this commission chooses to make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice. Um, I think everybody, and look, they've already charged, what is it, six, seven, eight hundred people who were doing the damage, who were involved in the rioting and breaking into offices and destroying things and the rest of it. Those people are going to jail. They won't go to jail for life, but they're going to jail or they're, they're going to get in trouble. It, it's, uh, it would be a little bit of a stretch to say those individuals will pay the price, but the people at the top who are actually trying to unlawfully alter a lawful election will just walk free from this? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think there will be a criminal referral. Um, and I think uh, Merrick Garland as attorney general will take this up um, if he's confident that he has the evidence for a conviction. You know, Joe, um, I talked earlier about American democracy and for its commitment to uh, uh, being held together by an ideal. And we've held that ideal for several centuries. Um, what happens when a requisite number of people don't share that ideal? It doesn't have to be a minority, but you have on one side the people who do not um, accept the findings of the 2020 election. They see January 6th as merely uh, a reaction to a fraud election. And then people who um, no longer have confidence in the Supreme Court. What happens then? Well, if, if they turn out in large enough numbers, um, it's, it's the beginning of the end of uh, our experiment with democracy. Um, you know, the sad thing is, uh, Byron, that there are a lot of people who not only can't spell autocracy, they don't even know what it means. Um, and an equal number probably that, you know, if you said the word democracy, they would recognize it as a word they've heard. But if you ask them to explain what the concept meant, I think most people would would uh, would be amiss on that, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the people who, who live in this country, but they they love something that not everybody understands is what it is, and that's one of the things that makes our democracy, our system of government, our ongoing experiment in this um, fragile, frankly, 
And it's part of the reason that we need to have even-handed players, political and legal, involved not only in operating the system, but also defending it and protecting it and making sure that people do what they're supposed to do and not um, engage in self-interest um, in ways that, that make the system look um, like it should go away. This is an interesting time that we're having this conversation today when there is another country, Ukraine, uh, which seeks to be a democracy, um, engaged in a, a war that they, they didn't ask for with a country that is very clearly a dictatorship and an autocracy at this point, and, and extremely corrupt uh, government as well that, that you know, it's not even taking care of its own people. And part of the reason there is a NATO in all of this um, is that there are other countries that believe in, in uh, democracy, and they also believe in preventing the spread of autocracy. The whole point of NATO that we helped to fund and back um, was to make sure that if World War III ever came, that they, we'd fight it in Europe. We wouldn't let it come to America's shores. We wanted to preserve what we had here. And we were willing to build that wall with them, with now 30 countries, um, to keep Russia contained in this way. And so there are people who, in other capacities, believe in a democracy and believe that it's worth protecting and preserving and also um, demonstrating as an example for other countries. Ukraine, by the way, wasn't always uh, a democracy. They, they, they've been a country that dealt and suffered from corruption problems too and, and people who were basically trying to scam and make money. It's it's not a surprise to me that that's the place where Donald Trump went to see if he could dig up dirt on Joe Biden, if you remember. Um, so while our democracy is fragile, and while we still involve ourselves on this very day in places overseas that 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 are intended to project the legitimacy of a democracy as a political form of government, um, there as here this is still uh, fragile. And that's why we have for so long referred to this as an experiment. You know, how far can we go with this? And will it work everywhere? And uh, I, I certainly keep my faith in democracy, but I'm not naive about how the world is. And at this point, it's, it's, uh, it's something we all have to pray about and, and be very concerned for. Finally, Back in 18, 1832, I believe I covered that election, um, uh, Andrew Jackson uh, remarked after a Supreme Court ruling by Justice John Marshall, um, where he reportedly said, Justice Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Are you concerned that, that if we continue on our current trajectory, that we could have, we conceivably have a future president sort of take that sort of Jacksonian light to a Supreme Court decision that ruled against them. Like, since you have no sword, you have no purse, enforce it. Let's see you enforce it. Are you concerned that we might erode the Supreme Court's authority if we continue down this trajectory? You mean uh, uh, not having an enforcement mechanism if we, if we didn't have that? Yes. Uh, if, yes. If, uh, if you, you have any kind of court that uh, basically has no teeth, then they have no bite basically. And so um, enforcement mechanisms are, are very important. The good news, and, and I think one that differentiates from the time of Andrew Jackson, um, is that we have a highly evolved um, uh, system of law enforcement at the federal and at the state levels today that weren't always there before hundreds of years ago. Um, and uh, uh, with, with the one exception of the Trump era, when Mr. Trump tried to sort of make the Department of Justice his own personal toy <laughs> and making them do whatever he told them to do, which is why so many of the lawyers who worked there, U.S. attorneys resigned um, or wouldn't go along with his nonsense. Uh, today, we have um, uh, a very uh, strong and involved uh, Justice Department, Justice System. Um, I think we still have work to do on our, our, our prisons and, and uh, the terms for how long we imprison people and, and why we imprison people. Um, we still have work to do in the law enforcement community um, for excessive use of force, 
or inappropriate and improper use of force. We need to have honest cops as honest brokers who also behave like judges, you know, within the rules. And uh, there's a lot of work to do where that is concerned. And we have too many, this is just my opinion, but we have too many people walking around with guns that they don't need and automatic weapons, which are military assault weapons um, that should never be in the general public. And uh, you're not going to fix that stuff overnight. That's stuff that's going to take a long time and it will require the existence of the kind of body politic, which I described to you a little while ago, which is conservatives and liberals, Democrats and Republicans actually working with each other and being friendly and trying to seek, you know, sort of some kind of common ground. We're just not there politically yet, but can it be done? Yeah, it can. And can things work if we don't have enforcement mechanisms? No, they won't. They won't at all. But like I said, the good news is I think the current iteration of the Department of Justice um, has a pretty good sense of itself. Definitely. Well, before we let you go uh, um, on more important matters, um, as our tradition is at the Pope and Rather, wherever we have you on, we need an update on Mr. August. How's he doing? Oh, they're so nice. <laughs> well, August um, is learning how to swim more every day. I take him to the pool with me, and, and uh, uh, his swim coach recently gave him a tiny pair of fins. He spent most of his time underwater swimming and then he would stop and he would bend over underwater and he would stare at the fence. And I kept pulling him up saying, why are you looking at your fins? He said, they're so interesting looking. <laughs> so he's curious like his, he's curious like his grandfather. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Tuman, uh, thank you again for your um, sobering insights. Um, we very much appreciated having you once again on the public morality. It's always a pleasure to be with a fellow ethicist. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app, Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Pullman Corrality at their studios. The Pullman Corrality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Morality, I'm Byron Williams.